Hey everyone, and welcome to History from the Back Pages, a podcast that goes in depth on historical figures and events throughout history. And today's episode will focus on the world's Colombian exposition. And the first episode of season three was on Carter Harrison Sr. And at the end of the episode, I talked about what was coming up for the second episode. So we're going to talk about the World's Columbian Exposition, which was held in Chicago. And also we're going to talk about famous serial killer who, for example, a serial killer such as Ted Bundy. He's very popular in the media. People know a lot about him. We're going to focus on one that's way before Ted Bundy, which is serial killer H.H. Holmes, who is really big in his murder spree in Chicago during this time period. So the first 15 minutes will focus in depth on the World's Columbia Exhibition, how it started, what happened, what were some of the highlights, what was held there. And then we'll focus on H.H. Holmes for the last 10, 15 minutes of this week's episode. So we might as well get ready to begin. And thanks for joining me for this episode. The World's Columbian Exposition was held in 1893. It started in May of 1893 and went to about October 31st, so Halloween of 1893. And I did some background on the World's Columbian Exposition because I knew some of the history behind it, what happened due to my history of Chicago class that I took in high school with Mr. Faust. It's kind of funny that the first episode, which was on Carter Harrison Sr., I was able to remember some stuff from what I learned in that class and also the World's Columbian Exposition. I can remember a little bit about the architecture from that class because that was a big part of the class, especially learning about architecture and the architecture style that most resembles the World's Columbian Expo is the neoclassical style. So for example, you'd see in Greece, Rome, the big pillars, columns, that kind of style, which I enjoy. That's one of the, the architecture styles I really like. And the World's Columbian Exposition, you may think was Chicago the first choice, but no. Chicago was one of three choices that the United States government was looking to choose. And the three that were narrowed down to were Chicago, New York City, and St. Louis. And I think right off the bat, you could say that St. Louis was definitely running third. They were probably the third most likely of the three to win the rights to have the World's Columbia Exposition held in their city. So... We can cross St. Louis off. So Chicago and New York City, those would be the most logical of the three. And Chicago at this time in the late 19th century had lots of big industrialists, people of a lot of millions, ready to pay up to host the expo. New York City also had a lot of big banker types, industry types as well. And now I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the people in Chicago and also New York City, who were willing to fund the expo, basically, to host it in their city. And in Chicago, 
Philip Armour, who is involved with the meat industry, Marshall Field, Cyrus McCormick, and Gustav Swift, also meatpacking, all offered to finance the fair, all very wealthy. So that's one thing you could take from the names that I mentioned. Philip Armour, Marshall Field, Cyrus McCormick, and Gustav Swift, all fabulously rich. They all offered to finance the fair. And in Newark City, people such as J.P. Morgan Chase, he offered to finance it along with some other names that I did not recognize. And it looked like it might go to New York City, but a Chicago banker, Lyman Gage, offered, raised about one more million dollars than the 15 million that was offered by Jamie Morgan Chase and others in New York City. So in the end, they decided that Chicago was the best bet due to raising the amount of money. That was the first part. Second part, Chicago's good choice because a lot of Chicago was still undeveloped. There was room to build big buildings that they needed for the fairgrounds. Over 200 buildings were built for the World Expo. And New York City was more compact, so it made sense to choose Chicago. So once they got the money in order and they found a place that they wanted to host the World's Columbian Expo, it looked like the perfect choice. So Ch Chicago ended up winning the rights to the World's Expo. That was in 1890, and they ended up it all being ready to go to be hosted in 1893. And fun fact, of the 200 buildings that were built for the World's Columbian Expo in Chicago, only two of them still remain today, here in 2020. The only two buildings left that are still remaining from back then in 1893 is the first one is the Palace of Fine Arts, which you may think, I don't know the Palace of Fine Arts, where is that? It's now the Museum of Signage Industry, which is a good museum. And then the second one was called the World's Congress Auxiliary Building, which is now the Art Institute of Chicago. And definitely interesting that those are the only two of the 200 they built that are still standing today. But in an article I read from Foreign Nations at the World's Fair by Augustus O'Brone, it talks a little bit towards the end about the temporary nature of the buildings a lot of the buildings were made to be temporary, not stand the stand of time. So not 200 years later to still be there, which makes sense. It was a fair. So a lot of the buildings were just there as exhibits. So they would be removed after a period of time. So after 1893, they'd probably be removed pretty shortly. So that's the history of how Chicago won the rights to the expo. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the nations involved, over 45 nations were involved and present at the World's Expo, such as Japan, Haiti, and European countries as well. And the article that I read that I really liked, Foreign Nations at the World's Fair by Augustus O'Brone, talked about how Japan played a major role in the World's Expo, because at the time, Japan and the United States did not really know each other because Japan, very isolated, 
And Japan still kind of has that vibe today, but they were due to like isolation from the rest of the world. So Japan, the United States wanted to get some better relations. So Japan, their emperor agreed to go to Japan from Japan to the World's Expo, send their delegates, which is a good will of faith, a show of faith. And I think I might have forgotten to say why the World's Climate Exhibition was even held in the first place, but it was held to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's arrival in the New World. So that's why it was held in this time period because it was over 400 years prior when he arrived in the New World in America, and now they wanted to celebrate him. And there was a number of world's fairs in, for example, Paris and prior to this. So, and they were shown to be pretty successful. So this is one reason that Chicago and the United States thought that it'd be great to hold one in the United States because it had some success in Europe, especially. Lots of thousands and millions of people were showing up to the fair to see the exhibits and all the stuff that was happening. So they said it was a good idea to probably host it at this time period. And for example, the, when you think of the World's Fair, you think of the Ferris wheel, which was made by George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. He created the first Ferris wheel and it was held at the expo. Some people go on the Ferris wheel and there was also life-size replicas of the free boats that Christopher Columbus sailed on. He and his crew, the Nina, Pinta, and the Santa Maria. They were all present there as well, the replicas. And some more interesting exhibits and items that were at the World's Expo were there was the John Bull train, which was made in 1831. It was present you can go from Chicago to Washington, D.C. And also, there was another replica of a ship. This one was a replica of a Viking lawn boat from 1893. So it's a replica of what Vikings would sh sail on back in the medieval days. An interesting one about that, if you're interested in seeing the replica of the Viking lawn boat, it's still intact today. You just need to go to Geneva, Illinois, where the replica is in a museum at Geneva, Illinois, which is interesting because I'm considering going later to Geneva. So maybe I could go to the museum and see the Viking lawn boat. And some more interesting facts about the fair was that there's exhibits by greats such as Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells. They focused on race. There were big keys and slavery movements and civil rights. They had their big exhibit, which at first people did not want to be shown. They didn't want that to be at the World's Fair, but they ended up getting permission and it was accepted by people. Even people who were white accepted it, so it was there. And one last exhibit that I really enjoyed reading about was... This was by one of my favorite scientists of all time, George 
Washington Carver. He had an exhibit on painting, and George Washington Carver is one of my favorites because he found a way to use over 105 different ways to use peanut, which he's basically, you can thank him for peanuts today. And George Washington Carver, is I didn't know that he was present at the fair, so that's really cool that he was there, George Washington Carver. And so just to summarize the World's Columbia Exposition, it started in 1893, lasted for a few months. Most of the buildings were all temporary, not to be permanent, so they were not going to last past a few years. And greats such as Frederick Douglass, Ivy Wells, George Washington Carver were present. And one last little fact I want to mention is that the person who was in charge of the fair was Charles Wacker. And if you say that name seems sort of familiar, that's due to the fact that Wacker Drive, Lower and Higher Wacker Drive in Chicago, is named for Charles Wacker who was in charge of the fair. And the location of the fair was Jackson Park, which was not very developed back then. So it was a good place to choose because there was lots of room to build the buildings and get the huge pool as well. Because there was a huge pool basically in the middle of the fair where people could look at, into it and see sort of a interesting pool there and that's basically all the important facts that you need to know about the world's climate exposition held in chicago in 1893 and i'll take a quick break and once we're back we're going to continue by talking about famous serial killer h h holmes an interesting fact that was not his real name he changed his name, but you'll learn about that in the second half of this episode. Stay tuned. And we're back. We've just finished talking about the World's Columbian Exposition. Now, going to talk about famous serial killer H. H. Holmes, who impacted Chicago in a huge way because this season focuses on events, places, and people who affected Chicago in a, a big way. H. H. Holmes definitely fits that bill. And H. H. Holmes, I, to be honest, did not know really anything about H. H. Holmes that I could remember at the top of my head. So I looked at Eric Larson's Devil in the White City to read a little bit about H.H. Holmes, which will give a good background. Also, I looked at crimemuseum.org, which is a really good source. They talked a lot about his early, what his name, he's born, and stuff that could be proven, but also not proven. So let's begin. H.H. Holmes was born 1861. His na original name was not H.H. Holmes. It was really Herman Webster Mugit. He was born in New Hampshire, and he changed his name 
once he graduated at 16 from high school, he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes, which is which he's better known as today. And once he graduated high school, he then went to become a doctor. He wanted to study medicine. So he studied in Vermont near New Hampshire. Then he got accepted to the University of Michigan Medical School. And while he was there, it's been reported that he did some devious, treacherous acts. For example, it's known that he stole cadavers from the laboratory, burned bodies, and they couldn't prove it. But H.H. Holmes was obsessed with getting insurance money. And the scandal here was that Holmes would take out insurance policies on these people. And then once the bodies were discovered, he would inherit big money. And once he graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School, he moved in 1885 to Chicago, Illinois, which is where he was best known as committing his murders in Chicago. And when he moved to Chicago, he got a job at a pharmacy, a little pharmacy in Chicago. And he changed his name again. He needed to use a good alias so he could commit his treacherous crimes. So he used the alias Dr. Henry H. Holmes. And sadly, when the owner of the drugstore died, this basically gave Holmes his opportunity, his big break to start committing many murders. So when the drugstore owner croaked, he left it to his wife, but Holmes bought the pharmacy from the wife. And luckily for Holmes, across the street, there was a vacant lot. So this is where Holmes built his murder castle, which you may know a little bit about the murder castle. It's definitely talked about in popular culture and in the media. And a little bit about the owner's wife. Once he bought it from her, she was never seen again. So that's pretty interesting. Did she die? Or they can't verify it. So to be honest, there's no way to know what happened to the widow. So once he bought the drugstore, he decided to build a building on the empty lot across the street to be a hotel. And it was called a hotel, but that's not a hotel I would want to stay at ever. And it was a three-story hotel, which in the neighborhood was called the Castle. It was built in 1889, and Holmes designed it to be his murder palace, where he could commit murder and not be caught because there was over 100 rooms in the murder castle and Holmes was able to trick people to go to the murder house they stay there in the hotel and they would never be seen again they would never leave because in the neighborhood a lot of people said that they could see especially women go into the murder castle but they would never come out and Holmes was an expert in using traps. So he had traps, trap doors, rooms that would lock from the inside. He would have gas that he could pump into the rooms so that people 
would die in there, and then he would take their bodies and ugh, yikes. And Holmes was able to do this under the eye of the police, so no one was able to know that Holmes was committing many murders. And one reason that Holmes was able to get so many young women into the murder castle was that he put ads in the newspaper offering jobs for them and also advertised it as a place of lodging. And he also said that he presented himself as a wealthy man looking for a bride, which, yikes. And, <laughs> oh man. And all of Holmes' employees, hotel guests, fiancés, wives, he also needed to use his insurance scheme yet again. And this one, I'm not sure really how it works. It doesn't really make sense. But for some reason, somehow, he was able to make all the people use him as the beneficiary if they died in the life insurance policy. So when they died, he would inherit all their money. And I don't really explain, understand how that works or why they would sign all their money away to H.H. Holmes because they only know him like as an employer or the hotel owner. And most people who stayed there were never seen again. And now we get to the part that has to deal with the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, 1893. And H.H. H. Holmes was able to completely orchestrate many more murders in this time period due to many people coming to Chicago. Thousands and millions of people are coming to Chicago. And Holmes thought that he'd be able to commit many devious murders because lots of young women, for example, would be coming to stay and he could get them to come stay at the murder castle and then he would seduce them and they would never be seen again. Like all the people who go to the hotel. And Holmes, who was an expert in all of the traps that he had there, like I said earlier. And once the World's Columbia Exhibition ended, and Holmes decided that he needed a new scheme because the murder castle was not going to work due to money issues. He decided to go back to insurance scams, insurance fraud. And this is where, if I was his accomplice, I would have immediately got out of there because H.H. Holmes was not a man that you'd want to be associated with or trust. I don't know if I could trust him, but he's able to get a guy to be his accomplice, Benjamin Pitzel, and he and Pitzel decided to go to different places such as Philadelphia and Texas where Holmes became a horse wrangler. He would steal horses and sell them for big money. And then he was sent to jail. So finally he got caught for his crimes. And he basically got out pretty early. And this is where Pitzel made a big mistake. His accomplice, Pitzel, decided that he'd home to do a NAR insurance scam. This time, Pitzel pretended that he had died, so Holmes would inherit all the money. But instead of doing that, Holmes just killed Pitzel instead and inherited anyway. So Pitzel was out of the picture. But while he was in jail for a little bit, he angered his cellmate. Marion Hedgepath, 
who turned in Holmes and told the police everything about Holmes' dirty schemes, what he was doing, the horse swindling. The police became very suspicious of Holmes, so they began to investigate his murder castle and found many people's bodies there, which I would not want to bet a police officer going to the murder castle to investigate, especially due to all the traps and basements and locked rooms that were there. What if I got caught or stuck in the murder castle? I would not be getting out of there. And once they finally arrested Holmes, he finally confessed to committing 28 murders, but only nine of them have been proven in fact in history. And many experts say more than 200 murders may have been committed, but there's no way to know the exact number due to many of the bodies being disfigured and beyond recognizable. And H.H. Holmes, he's definitely definitely well-known in Chicago for his big murder spree as a serial killer, probably the first American serial killer in United States history, and definitely one of the worst. And that's why H.H. Holmes is important to Chicago, is to know about the past and also know about the underbelly or the darker side of Chicago because you need to know about things like that. And that's the story of famous serial killer H.H. Holmes from when he started basically in 1885, his murder spree, till when he was hanged in 1896 for his crimes. And thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode of History from the Back Pages, Season 3, Episode 2 on the World's Columbian Expedition and H.H. Holmes. And next week's episode, we're going to look at a little bit more recent time period in history. We're going to move on past the 19th century, early the late 19th century to early 20th century. So stay tuned for more information coming up next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning in.